Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 6 through 10. It's become a, a bit of a tradition here at uh, First Baptist to use the first Sunday in January each year to address something that we hope will take root in the life of the church over the course of the following calendar year. And this morning is no different as we turn to Paul's first letter to Timothy. As you're turning there, let me just mention, I forgot to mention this in the first service and then again in this service. If uh, you, you would like a resource to help you along with the New City Catechism each week, uh, we have this just really attractive little devotional book in the bookstall. It's five bucks, has all the questions, all the answers, all the Bible verses that go along with them. So if you would like to memorize the catechism or perhaps work through this with your children, this is a wonderful resource to do that. Um, Christy has begun to uh, walk through the catechism with our kids this morning as well. Uh, what is one of the real strengths of this is that for every question, there's an answer for adults, and within the answer to the adults, there's a highlighted section that's shorter that comprises the answer for children. So even if you just want to memorize the children's answer to get a, a grasp of what the catechism's communicating, it'd be a wonderful thing to pick up in the bookstall if they're still there, uh, five bucks for one of these. And you could spend your $5 on a sugar-filled frappuccino or a really good Christian catechism. I think you can weigh what would be the better use of your money and your time. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 10, if you'll follow along with me. This is Paul, again, the apostle, writing to Timothy, a young pastor. And he says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. This is God's Word. Let's bow and pray together. Father, thank You for revealing Yourself to us in the Scriptures. Thank You for Your precious promises and Your good commands. Father, we pray that as we look to Your Word that Jesus might be exalted, that the Spirit would be our teacher, helping us not only to understand but to apply the things that You have for us this morning. We ask all that we have in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you, but most of the news sites that I frequent throughout the week have been awash in this past week with tips and tricks for keeping those pesky New Year's resolutions. I'm sure all of you, at least many of you, if the statistics are right, have made New Year's resolutions, as have I. I, I tend to call them uh, scheduled behavioral changes instead of New Year's resolutions. For some reason, that helps me attempt to keep them, I suppose. But that's just the problem with New Year's resolutions. It's not in making them, it's in keeping them. One of the articles that I read suggested that 40% of Americans make New Year's resolutions, and a mere 40% of that 40% will still be at them six months into the year. 
which of course contradicted another study which seemed to suggest that 80% of resolvers give up on their resolutions by the month of February. Experience tells me that's probably the more accurate statistic. And so generally the literature revolves around the idea of how to keep your resolutions, how to actually keep them. Some of the tips that you'll get are pretty mindless and easy to come on. Be specific. It's helpful to have a specific resolution rather than a general. Make it realistic, something you can actually achieve. Allow yourself to fail. All fairly good pieces of advice, I would say. Um, but other articles tout gadgets and apps that will help you keep your resolutions. One of them was so absolutely ridiculous that I had to download it immediately. It's called Quantified Sit. You heard that correctly. Quantified Sit. It is a timer that helps you know how long you've sat in silence. Quantified Sit. For those who want to be more mindful and meditative in the next year, Quantified Sit is your app. It's really just an alarm clock. And I just found that so funny. Like, why would you set an alarm for something that you, this period of time you want to be de-stressing, when the alarm would just add stress to the whole scenario, right? Quantified sit. I've got it on my phone and I'm already ashamed of it. Others still claim that science is the key to change. If you want to keep your New Year's resolutions, then you should use science to support your way of going about them. So, for instance, science would suggest that if you'd like to work out, you should choose a gym closer to your home than farther, which there might be science to back that up. I think that's just plain and simple common sense. If you won't go to the gym around the corner, you're not going to go to one all the way across town. But nevertheless, science is touted as something that will help us keep our New Year's resolutions. Have you kept yours? We're five days in. I think what we need, more than advice on how to keep our resolutions, is we need to look squarely in the mirror and realize that what we actually need is better resolutions. We don't need to be told how to keep our resolutions. We need to be told how to make better resolutions. Sometimes we scoff at the idea of making resolutions, but I'm reminded of a 19-year-old Jonathan Edwards, one of the most famous theologians ever to walk this land in America. He wrote in his journal at 19 years old, I want to emphasize that, 19, the following words. This is resolution 28 of 70, by the way. Resolved to study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. Two resolutions later, number 30, resolved to strive to my utmost every week to be brought higher in religion and to a higher exercise of grace than I was the week before. These are the kinds of better resolutions that the man or the woman in Christ ought to be making. These are the kinds of resolutions I want to submit to you this morning from the Scriptures that the Apostle Paul would endorse. What I want to bring forward to us this morning as a church comes in that very simple phrase you'll find in verse 7. Train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. Now, in a sentence... 
this larger section of Scripture, verses 6 to 10, could be said that the good servant of Christ must be nourished by the Word and trained for godliness. The good servant of Christ must be nourished by the Word and trained for godliness. And I use those two words very purposefully. Because in the text in front of us, you'll notice that Paul uses the word trained or train or training multiple times. So you have it in verse 6, that the good servant of Christ is one who is being trained. The word there is, is in all reality nourished, as the newer NIV has it and the CSB has it. And then in verse 7, the command to train yourself has the, the, the root word of, of, of the gymnasium. It's an exercise, kind of blood and sweat and toil kind of word. It has everything to do with working out what we've taken in. And so if it helps you, as I've found has helped me and many others, what Paul is writing about here in this section of 1 Timothy is the diet and exercise requisite to be a godly Christian. What will we be nourished by and how will we exercise? The diet and the exercise requisite to be a godly Christian. Now someone says, wait just a moment. You said at the beginning of the message that this letter is written by an apostle to a pastor. So it makes sense that these things would be required of a person who's in full-time gospel ministry. But hold the phone. Look at verse 11. It follows right after verse 10. You didn't come here for that, but there you go. Verse 11 comes right in verse 10. Command and teach these things. So here's Paul to Timothy. Timothy, here's your Sunday sermon. I want to give you your Sunday sermon right now. I want you to command and teach the things that I have just commanded and taught you. So it doesn't just go for the person in professional public gospel ministry. This is Christian life 101. Diet and exercise requisite to be a godly Christian. And our outline is going to be simply nourished by the Word and trained for godliness. So let's look first at this idea of nourished by the Word. Look at verse 6, and let's read that again to keep it fresh in our minds. If, Timothy, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith, or nourished in the words of the faith, and of the good doctrine that you have followed. If you do this, you will be a good servant. Now, it doesn't take a lot of intelligence to realize that if he does not do this, he will not be a good servant. If you do this, Paul says, you will be a good servant of Christ. What is the this? Put these things before the brothers. What are these things? You allow your eyes to move up to verses 1 to 5. Let me read those for you. This is what Timothy is to preach to his church. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is rejected with, or received rather with thanksgiving." For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. To be a good servant of Christ Jesus, Timothy, what you're going to need to do is you're going to have to help the church understand that there are liars and deceivers who are going to muddy the water about the gospel 
rather than teaching that we are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, that there are commands in the Bible that flow from our acceptance with Christ, they are going to add commandments vis-a-vis marriage and food and require people to obey them, you're going to have to point out that doctrine as false in order to be a good servant of Christ. The good minister of the Gospel is someone who not only teaches positively what the truth is, but preaches negatively against falsehood, what Paul calls in this passage, irreverent, silly myths. Nonsense. You're going to have to point that out. Which, just off the cuff, it makes me feel pretty good that I've just pointed that out to you. (laughs) Check that box for the day. The good servant of Christ points out error. But the question is why? Why does Paul make this connection? Why, for Paul, is a good servant of Christ Jesus the one who points out these things. If you think about it, just the most basic level that indicates that Jesus himself then must want this kind of falsehood exposed. But there's a little bit more to it than that. Because I want you to notice the way in which Paul defines. This is a definition of a good servant of Christ. It is one who is being trained, nourished in the words of the faith, and of the good doctrine that you have followed. It is one who is feeding on and nourished by the truth of the Gospel as it's revealed in Scripture. You know, I have noticed in my life that most people who go into the culinary arts love food. Sometimes you can look at a chef on television and think, that person picked the right profession. They must love food, right? And the point that Paul is making is that the good minister of the gospel cannot present the church with healthy, nourishing food if he is not first enjoying it himself. Not simply to be able to regurgitate facts from the Scriptures, but to actually make use of the truth of the Bible. Making use of it in the discerning between what is true and what is false. How do I know if I've actually been sustained by and nourished by the Scriptures? Not only do I know what's true, but I can point out what's false. I can see it coming from a mile away. Why? Because I've fed on the Bible and I can make use of it. Friends, let me just be so bold as to ask that you would pray for me in the coming year along these lines, that I would continue to be nourished by the Bible, and that the rest of our elders and our staff would continue to be nourished by the Bible. Understand that apart from this kind of nourishment, we are of no use to you. Why would you ever entrust your soul or the souls of your family members to a group of people who aren't being nourished by the Scriptures? That is the height of spiritual irresponsibility. The staff knows very well that if they don't have any, quotes, busy work to do in the office, that what I expect of them is to open the book and read. That is foundational for ministry here at First Baptist. William Hendrickson, one of the great commentators of the last century, writes, an excellent minister is one who in loving devotion to his task, to his people, and above all to his God, warns against departures from the truth and shows how to deal with error. Such a man truly represents and belongs to Christ Jesus. It's all well and good, but command and teach these things, Timothy. 
Put these things forward to the church, Timothy. And so I ask, how nourished are you? And when I ask that, I do not mean how many minutes did you spend this morning in the Bible? What I ask is, are you able to spot error as it comes at you at a thousand miles an hour in every area of life outside of this building? Are you able to do that? I looked at the top 20 best-selling Christian books on Amazon.com this morning, and I want to weep. Because I, could only, I found I only actually recommend about three. Are you nourished? Are you able to discern truth and error? Friends, one of my, one of my greatest fears here just lay bare my heart before you. One of my greatest fears here is along these lines. There are some very happy exceptions, and for them, I praise God, and if you are one of them, you will know. And, and take this as an attaboy, girl. keep doing what you're doing. But my fear is that so many of us are trying to grow in godliness. We're actually trying to pursue Jesus on the strength of a 30 to 40 minute sermon on a Sunday morning, and then little devotional bits in between. I mean, let's, let's just do a thought experiment for a moment. Let's imagine that after the service today, I said, you know what, we're going to Pegley's. Immediately after, lunch is on me. I'm buying. You order whatever you want. I want you to fill yourself up and then fill yourself up some more. So we go down to Pegley's. We give him a heart attack as we walk through the door. We say, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to be spending some dough here. And everybody orders what they get. You, you know, you've got New Year's resolutions, so you get steak instead of pasta. I'm told that's one of the best steaks in town, by the way. Everybody's thinking about steak. But you eat as much as you possibly can eat. And on our way out, I said, all right, now listen. Glad we had a good meal together. Glad we're overflowing. Here's what we're going to do. Between now and lunch next Sunday, you may only survive on a small handful of seeds or nuts in the morning as you leave for work. You may not eat lunch, you may not eat dinner, you may not eat any real breakfast, no supplements. You got a little handful of nuts or seeds every day until we come back and do this again on Sunday. Who here would say that that's a healthy way to live? Who here would say that, that you, you, you would be nourished? You would be incredibly malnourished. And you know what you would find over time? You would find that as you went to Pegley's each and every Sunday as time went on, that you would, you'd actually be able to eat less every week wouldn't you? That in only eating little bits throughout the week, you would shrink your stomach so that when you were presented with a spread of delicious and nourishing food, you won't be able to nibble. Why do we think for a second that spiritual growth is any different? And we can sort of come in here, hear a 30 to 40 minute sermon, and then get by on little devotional bits throughout the week, maybe a verse here that pops up on our prayer calendar, perhaps an inspiring story that we read in a devotional book, maybe a meme that we see on a friend's social media post. Why do we think that that's enough to cause us to actually grow in godliness? That is not nourishing. That is malnourishment. Some of us wonder why it is we can't handle real, substantive, doctrinal Bible teaching. The reason is we got no appetite for it because we don't read our Bibles. I say this with love and with a broken heart. 
Some of us wonder why we just can't get the contours of the storyline of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Well, it's because we've only read about ourselves in a devotional book. I mean, ask yourself the question, really, do you believe that, as we said a couple weeks ago, that 80% of Christians had a difficult time discerning the doctrine of Jesus? Do you think that that would be the case if Christians were opening their Bibles? It can't be. Do we really think that churches in America that are completely rife with complaining, grumbling, dissension, division, agony, headache all over the place, ministry leaders hate the church, the church hates the ministry, do we really think that that's happening in churches where people are consistently reading their Bibles? I mean, it's possible. It's far less likely. This year, my prayer is that we would commit to devouring, being nourished by God's Word. Charles Spurgeon is famous for saying it takes a full Christian to, or a full Bible to make a full Christian. Be nourished. Nourished by the Word. And number two, trained for godliness. Now these two things overlap. And we look at verse 7 have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Now, I love Kendall. Kendall's trying to make an exit. He knows I'm I'm mentioning him. I love Kendall. I walked back to get a coffee this morning, and all I see in his office is four dozen donuts. And I had to run. Now, not all my friends were running. I'm not going to embarrass anybody, but I had to run. I had to get the heck out of that area. If not, I was going to be face deep in glazed Krispy Kremes in no time. Paul says, run, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. In other words, get rid of the junk food. There's a lot of junk out there. Don't eat it. Instead, train yourself, exercise yourself, work out for godliness. Train yourself. Now, what is godliness? If you haven't been in the bookstall this year yet, you should really go in there. There's a series of, of very carefully curated books. Someone from the staff chose each and every one of them. And I, I was just so encouraged by the, the books that the staff chose, and in particular this morning, the, the book that was chosen by Scott Frederick. It's Knowing God by J.I. Packer. It should be required reading for the Christian. I want to find the quote that Scott chose as the, the best quote of the book. Packer says this, Godliness means responding to God's revelation in trust and obedience, faith and worship, prayer and praise, submission and service. Life must be seen and lived in the light of God's Word. This and nothing else is true religion. Do you want your religion to be true? Not a sham? You know, I think some of us might be off-put a bit by the language that Paul uses. Train yourself for godliness. Get in the gym. You know, he's using athletic imagery, so I'm going to use some athletic imagery myself without apology. When I go to the gym, I have to walk through another gym to get to the gym that I go to, and the first gym that I walk through is sort of a big bodybuilder kind of place. And as I walk through it, I look to the right. I see pictures of these people whose muscles have muscles. There's a man on the wall who evidently recently was Mr. Pittsburgh, and he's just 
exploding with musculature. And it would be a complete, it would just be nonsensical to think that this man just rolled out of bed one morning and was there. You know? Just this past year, somebody finally broke the two-hour mark. Two hours, under two hours, ran a marathon. 26.2 miles in less than two hours. And it would be ridiculous to think the guy got out of bed, strapped on some Nikes, and said, let's go. When you watch your favorite football team, I can't say this about myself, when you watch your favorite football team, you see people do amazing things that you think, I don't even know how it's possible to do those things. Well, it's possible because these people have trained themselves. What you don't see in the gym is that last rep when the person's face is bright red and their veins are bulging. What you don't see is that next step forward in running when the person's about to collapse but won't give up. What you don't see is the training that goes into the freedom of doing what it is they want to do. Why would we think being like Jesus is any different? No one rolls out of bed one morning and suddenly they're like the Savior. I want to be as clear as I possibly can. Godliness will never be yours without discipline. But as soon as I say that, I want to also say, you will never be disciplined apart from the gospel. Listen to the kind of language that Paul uses here. Verse 10. For to this end, what is the end? The end is godliness. For to this end, and we toil and strive. Does that sound passive to you? Does that sound like someone who's sitting on their hands, just waiting for it to happen? To this end, we toil and we strive. And get this. Why do we do it? We do it because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those, some believe the better translation would be, um, that is of those who believe. We strive to be godly because we've set our hope on Christ, because we've been saved by grace, because we've been forgiven of our sins. That's why we strive. We do not strive in order to be forgiven of our sins. We do not strive in order to be accepted by God. But if we have been, the natural flowing out from that is discipline and godliness. Look at what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery, the secret of godliness. And then he describes the gospel. He, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. If you want to be godly, you cannot do it apart from the Gospel. Faith in Christ first. But the moment that we come to faith in Christ and realize that we are saved by grace and not our works, we're actually freed to get to work. There's almost an immediate corollary in physical fitness. You exercise, not in order to earn a body, you exercise because you've been given a body. In the spiritual realm, you train yourself to be godly, to be godly not in order to earn your salvation, but because you've been given it. Train yourself. Toil. Strive. Do you get the point? My prayer for us as a church is that we are serious about disciplining ourselves for the sake of godliness. Paul says this is a trustworthy and uh, saying deserving of full acceptance. What is that? 
the saying that bodily training is of some value, but godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Incidentally, this is the Bible's endorsement of being physically fit. You should, you should have some sort of physical exercise. Don't make people feel bad about trying to be physically fit. But what Paul is saying is spiritual fitness is even more important because let's face it. I mean, just be a wise investor. You're going to live a lot longer in the life that is to come than you are in the life now. So why not train in such a way as to be fit in this life and in the next? That's what training for godliness is. Now, I don't know how you do this apart from the Scriptures. It seems to me that what Paul is saying is that the very same thing that we are to be nourished by is the thing that we are supposed to train ourselves in. The Scriptures. Otherwise, Bible reading isn't even Christianity 101. It's a prerequisite even to get in the course. So what I want to do this morning, and this is something that I, I don't often do, I want to just sort of give you some suggestions to get yourself started on training yourself for godliness. They do not come with the force of, thus saith the Lord. They are generally from my own personal patterns. And I don't say that because I feel like I'm, you know, the paradigm here. I'm just trying to be helpful. If you like something, use it. If not, use something else. But for, crying out loud, guys, if we've set our hope on the living God, if we've believed upon Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, let's not miss out on the fact that the gospel promise is not only that you'd be forgiven of your sins, but that you'd be made like Jesus. That's why He saved you. To make you like Himself. And He's going to do that through your training as you train yourself for godliness. So here we go. Here are a few suggestions that I have on trying to train yourself for godliness. Number one, understand grace and effort. Understand grace and effort. Now all I mean by that is that if you're going to set about on a course of trying to be more like Jesus, you've got to understand that God does not save you because you're trying to be like Jesus. He rather first saves you and then motivates you to be like Jesus. Do you see the difference there? The first approaches Bible reading as a means to earning God's favor. That's not appropriate. The second approaches Bible reading as the joyful response to having been made right with God. So understand grace and effort. Here's a wonderful little thing that you can pray just about every morning as you sit down with your Bible to learn about the Lord. You might pray, Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that I am not saved because I am going to read your word, but that you saved me so that I would delight in reading your word. It's a real simple way to orient your mind at the very beginning of your Bible reading that you're not doing it to earn God's favor, you're doing it because you've been given God's favor. So understand grace and effort. Because the worst thing that could happen is a bunch of self-righteous people reading their Bible every day and looking down their nose at everyone who's not. Remind yourself of grace and effort. Number two, this is maybe the most practical of them all, have a plan. Have a plan. Listen, the cliche is a cliche because it's true that if you plan to fail, or if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. 
So have a plan. I want to tell you that I plan virtually every element of my Bible reading. I am so neurotic about it that if you look at my Outlook calendar, Jan Weaver has access to my Outlook calendar, she can affirm this, I literally schedule my Bible reading every single day on my calendar. I know my phone buzzes 7 a.m. to 8 a.m. That time, that hour is designated for Bible reading. So have a plan. I plan the what, the when, the where, and the how. So, for example, the what, for me, is the Machane Bible Reading Plan. We've been promoting it for uh, quite some time. I think it's one of the most helpful Bible reading plans. You may not. You may find a different Bible reading plan that you like better. Good on you. I'm glad for that. Just have a plan. So I know every morning I'm going to read four chapters of Scripture, at least, as I follow along the daily readings for Machane. I plan the when. It's 7 a.m. to 8 a.m. As best as I can swing it, every day, 7 a.m. to 8 a.m. I plan the where. Do you know why I plan the where? Because if I don't read my Bible at my kitchen table and I try to read it in my office, it takes about five minutes for someone to come knocking or for me to begin thinking about preaching, and suddenly I'm not actually reading my Bible, I'm just checking a box. So I plan the where. I'm much more effective at reading for myself at my kitchen table than I am at my desk. I plan out the how. And what I mean by that is I understand that in reading four chapters of Scripture every day, I'm going to take in a lot more than I actually can meditate on and benefit from. So I read with an eye to one verse. Can I find one verse that I'm going to understand in context, in Christ, and apply to my life? Now, we were talking about this this morning as elders. You know what happens if you consistently read the Bible? Suddenly, talking about the book of Ezra being the most encouraging thing you've read all week isn't weird anymore. But when I say that Ezra is the most encouraging thing I've read this week, you probably go, what are you talking about? Is that even in the Bible? Yes, it's in the Bible. Ezra chapter 5 and verse 2, and I put it in my notes this morning because it, it so encouraged me. Ezra is talking about the rebuilding of the temple and the people of God trying to do a great work for the Lord. Here's Ezra chapter 5 verse 2. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedic, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. The prophets of God are with them, supporting them. How are they doing that? Well, they're prophesying. They're preaching. How do you think that made my heart sing before I stood up to preach to you this morning? If I'm going to truly support these people, if I'm going to truly serve these people, then I must preach to them. Ezra chapter 5, verse 2. Most encouraging devotional thought I had all week. I read with an eye to having one thing to latch onto, to meditate on, to turn into prayer, and to seek to apply. So understand grace and effort. Have a plan. Here's number three. Join a team. Join a team. I'm going to tell you that one of the most beneficial things you can do for your spiritual growth is to bring others in on the journey. At the most basic level, what that might mean for you is that you've got other people in the church who are doing the same Bible reading plan as you. And there are many of us doing the machine plan. I know on any given day I can walk from my office to Scott's and we could talk about what we read in the morning because we're doing the same thing. I know that I can text Jeremy Lutz. We've been reading the same thing. Bringing other people in to talk about what we're reading is one of the best things that we can do for our spiritual discipline. Consider this. Nobody lifts heavy weights 
At least benches heavy weight without a spotter. People finish races because people are running with them. We've got to join a team so that we consistently continue to be in the Word and to grow in Christ. For others of us, it might mean getting into a one-to-one Bible reading relationship where we're actually going to sit down with somebody and do the hard work of reading the Bible together and holding each other accountable to applying what it says. For others of you, it will mean getting off the bench and getting into a growth group. They're wonderful. You can do far worse than learning from John Stott, for crying out loud. Join a team and understand the, the stretching and the growth that will happen if you bring somebody in to your Bible reading. And here's another thing. And I've been told this by multiple people at multiple times. This is not just me on a whim. I've been told various times from people here at First Baptist that, you know, we do really well at friendship. We love each other, we've got great relationships, and we praise God for that. But what I've heard consistently is that they're not actually built on, founded upon, our relationship with Christ. So that it, when it comes to a, a conversation you're having with a friend here at the church and you say, well, what have you been reading in the Bible this week? Boom! Wall goes up. Loved ones, that is absolutely unacceptable. We were praying as elders this morning. Mark Williams, bless his heart, you just could see the, the passion of, of, of wanting to be able to, to have friends here to say, you know, what is God teaching you this week? And I long for you to ask me that. That's what it means to join a team. Friendship within the church that is not founded upon the Scriptures and Christ is not, I hate to say this, it's not fellowship. Whatever else we might call it, it's not fellowship. Fellowship is me, you, and Jesus. Fellowship is me, you, and the Scriptures. It's not me and you around a cup of coffee. I can get that anywhere, and so can you. Join a team. My fourth piece of advice is just keep moving. Just keep moving. Some of us have this temperament that goes like this, and I know it myself, so that's why I can identify it. If you get off a day in your Bible reading plan, you you start with a lot of gusto, get one day off, and the whole thing's scrapped. It gets chucked. And understand, it doesn't get chucked because you go, well, I missed a day, so I might as well quit. What happens is you miss one day, which turns into two, which turns into three, it turns into four, sometimes five, maybe even a week. And then by the time you, you attempt to recover, what you try to do is you try to kind of catch up all at once. So the following day is, instead of just reading where I left off, I'm going to read the next five or six days and then keep running. And you just overwhelm yourself and you drown. I'm going to let you in on a little secret, which I, you know, I went to seminary for stuff like this. I can guarantee you God is not displeased if you read January 3rd's reading on January 12th. Is that liberating? Like, in those Bible reading calendars, the date is arbitrary. Those aren't inspired at all. Just keep moving. Listen, you're going to have crazy days. I know it because I have crazy days. You're going to have a morning where the kids are crazier than usual. You're going to have days when you hit the snooze button a few too many times. You're going to have days where the stress 
of what's coming at you at work or in your family is going to overwhelm you and sort of cloud out your focus. That's going to happen. But that doesn't mean you have to chuck the whole enterprise. Just, just keep moving. What's my next day? Let me read it. If it takes you three years to do a one-year Bible reading plan, praise God. Praise Him. You just read the entire Bible. Just keep moving. And you're going to help each other, aren't you, as you join a team to just keep moving? Yesterday morning, I was doing this awful exercise, and I started yelling audibly, literally, and my dear brother Pat said, keep going, Mike. Just keep moving. And you know what? I didn't want to let him down, so I kept moving. Just keep moving. Understand grace and effort. Have a plan. Join a team. Just keep moving. But for train yourself. No one rolls out of bed and suddenly is like Jesus. You will never be godly apart from discipline. But you'll never be disciplined apart from grace. And one of the key indicators, the key indicators of someone who has been just absolutely marveled by, by Jesus is someone who has this hunger for his word. I'll tell you two quick stories. I know um, my New Year's resolution, one of them is to preach shorter sermons and to finish Matthew. So there's something that you can worship for. But two quick stories. I have a friend, a real clever guy, went to Duke. His wife, even cleverer, as is usually the case, she went to Brown and then to Duke, where she got two master's degrees at one time. And she got converted while at, at, at Brown. And she began to read the Gospels. She read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just completely tore into them. And her question was, why did Jesus have to keep dying and rising again? Why did he do that four times? But here's the thing. Like, that's funny, and, and she, she understands that she doesn't believe that. But what's so beautiful about that is she got there because she was tearing into the Bible. And if that's what it taught, she would have believed it. Another young man that got converted over at Parkside when, when I was there, his name's Dave. I'll never forget, he was reading the Gospel of John, and he, he just absolutely devoured it. Just was reading it all the time. I think he read it multiple times in his first week or so of being a Christian. And he came to me and he said, Mike, this is probably the best thing I've ever read, but I don't understand how John wrote it if his head got cut off. Because he had confused John the Baptist and John the Apostle. But here's the beautiful thing, is he got there because he was tearing into the Scriptures. And I'm telling you, if I would have looked at him and said, yeah, I don't know, it's crazy, but it happened, he would have said, good enough for me. Because he was so enthralled by Jesus, he just couldn't get enough of his word. Nourished by the word, trained for godliness. Father, thank you. Thank you that you give us this very strong encouragement to train ourselves, to be nourished, to be built up, to exercise, to be like Christ. But thank you as well, not only for the instruction, but for the incentive that you have saved us and promised never to leave us or forsake us, and that one day when we stare at your presence, we'll be made fully like you and 
in between those two things, Lord, we want to work hard. We want to roll up our sleeves in order to be like You. So Lord, help us to begin or to renew our journey along these lines. Help us to be in Your Word. Help us to remember grace. Help us to join a team as we partner with other people here at First Baptist to do so. And Lord, when discouragement kicks in and conviction floods our hearts for those days that we've missed, Lord, help us to just keep moving. Lord, You Yourself prayed, sanctify them by the truth. Your Word is truth. Lord, we pray that not only in word, but in practice, we would live in light of those things. We pray all that we have in Jesus' precious name. Amen.